0: This episode is brought to you by Hover. It's never too late to step up to the plate and share what you have to offer. If you have a brand that you've always dreamt of building or a business you want to take online, the first step is finding your domain name. Hover makes it super simple with a clear and straightforward user experience, easy to use tools, and truly amazing support from friendly humans. You can buy a domain, set up custom email boxes, and point it to your website in just a few clicks. I literally house all of my nine web domains with Hover, and I absolutely love working with them. If you're ready to get your idea off the ground with the perfect domain name, head on over to hover.com hurryslowly hurry slowly to get 10% off your first purchase. Once again, that's hover.com slash hurry slowly to get 10% off. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly podcast about personal and collective transformation. And this season, we're exploring what it means to come home in all the forms that expression can take. So in the first episode, we investigated the idea of what it means to literally come home, to build a home, to stay in one place, to pick up and move, to stay connected to your existing persona or to light it on fire and christen yourself anew. And in the second episode, a conversation with Sabine Selassie, we talked about coming home to the body, what that means when faced with chronic illness or pain, how transformation can be as simple and as hard as just allowing the changes that are arising for you to unfold. And also about the ancestral trauma that we're all carrying and how we can acknowledge it and accept it. Today, I want to explore what coming home means on a more energetic level and all of the ways in which we might be unconsciously choosing to create a feeling of unsafety for ourselves that makes it difficult to come home, to come home to our bodies, to come home to peace, to come home to a fuller expression of self. And the way that I want to dive into this topic of safety is by talking about what I think of as bad habit loops. So within the realm of self-help culture, talking about habits and how to build better habits has really been all the rage for some time now. Some of the best-selling nonfiction books of the past few years have been all about how to cultivate better habits. But all of these books really focus on the sunny side of habits, daily routines and things you can do to be more productive or to get more fit. As you might imagine, that is not really what I'm interested in. I'm interested in the dark side of habits, the addictive, anxious, internal routines and dialogues that we're constantly performing and re-performing to keep ourselves from feeling safe or to suppress our self-expression or To feel unloved. You know, where are the books about these habits? As far as I can tell, they're definitely not on any of the bestseller lists if they exist at all. So today I'm going to take you on (laughs) a deep, dark journey into the annals of Jocelyn history as a way of demonstrating how we can use these bad habit loops to create. And then recreate and then recreate a feeling of unsafety or a feeling of not being at home or a feeling of not being able to express ourselves. And on this psychic sightseeing tour, we're going to stop at three really fun destinations, my anxiety about bedbugs, my obsession with detective fiction, and my drinking problem. So hopefully that list doesn't have you hitting pause already. I swear I'll try to make it at least a little bit funny, maybe throw in a few existential pratfalls. So let's rewind to my 28th birthday, which was roughly 17 years ago, to set the scene. So I was living in an apartment in Brooklyn with my first love and our two... Plus, year relationship was in the process of slowly falling apart. And we were living in Greenpoint, which was the area of Brooklyn that had the distinction of being the neighborhood highlighted in a feature story in the New York Times about the resurgence of bedbugs. And the poor apartment dwellers featured in this front page story happened to live on my block, just a few apartments down and so I had developed a pretty severe anxiety that I too would one day discover bed bugs in my apartment. So cut to my 28th birthday, I had decided to have a party and my girlfriend at the time and I ended up having a fight and she retired to our bedroom early to lay down and Later, after I had wrapped up the party, I went into the bedroom and turned on the light. And there they were, the bedbugs of my nightmares crawling all over our bed. And we broke up shortly thereafter. And I moved into an apartment by myself. An apartment that, by the way, had so much bad karma that I actually got locked inside of it, not locked outside of it, but inside. But anyway, long story short, my Saturn return, for those of you who are down with astrology, (laughs) seems to have come right on time. So for those of you who are not in the know, your Saturn return is an astrological event that usually happens somewhere between the ages of 28 and 30. And it's when the universe sort of crashes into your life, upends everything, and you have to figure out how to reassemble everything in a new way. And apparently my Saturn return was like that person who's so eager that they arrived to yoga class 10 minutes early and are waiting outside the studio for the instructor to show up and open the door. You know, my Saturn was just there like, is it time? Is it time? Is it time to fuck up Jocelyn's life yet? And then I turned 28 and bam, first love destroyed. And now you have bedbugs. And I guess it makes some kind of twisted sense that my Saturn would be an overachiever. But anyway, so what does any of this have to do with habits or feeling at home? Well, because of the simultaneity of these events of the dissolution of my relationship with the first person I'd ever really been in love with and the advent of bedbugs, I made the wise subconscious decision to process all of the heartache I was experiencing from my breakup through my fear of bedbugs, which led me to develop a massive, obsessive-compulsive complex about them. So even though I moved away from the apartment where we had originally discovered the bedbugs and in fact moved multiple other times, and even though I got rid of literally almost everything that I owned in a fit of paranoia, I continued to be obsessed with the possibility that I might still have bedbugs which led to a whole cycle of bizarre habits like constantly checking my bed for signs, constantly checking my body for bites, constantly treating my room with weird things like diatomaceous earth. But I would only do this when my roommates were out because I didn't want them to learn about my shameful secret. So basically I was in this Super dark web of habit loops that I was using to constantly re trigger a feeling of unsafety in my home, as well as this shame about possibly giving bed bugs to someone else. And this triggering went on for years and years. Did I actually need to be worried about bed bugs after I moved out of that first apartment where I found them? In hindsight, I seriously doubt it, but did I need to be worried about ever falling in love again, and how vulnerable I had felt, and how crushing our breakup was, and did I need to create a constant feeling of unsafety for myself again and again so that I would remember this important lesson about never making myself vulnerable again? I think the answer to that is... Yes, or at least it was yes at the time. To break that down a little more clearly, essentially I was creating a feeling of unsafety for myself again and again as a kind of protective safety mechanism to protect me from future vulnerability, if you can follow that kind of messed up logic. If you remember the recent episode, the first one of this season, where I was talking about moving upstate to make a new home for myself in 2019, I experienced a flare up of this same old bedbug anxiety then. Having moved so many times as a kid and struggling so much with the idea of making a literal physical home for myself, the old anxiety got re triggered again in an attempt to you know, sort of protect me from this scary new situation of making a home for myself in a new place. Now, while I was technically re-triggering myself again and again with that situation, it was a bit involuntary. As with all bad habits, it's not like I wanted to worry about bad bugs. It just happened. But I have another bad habit loop related to creating a feeling of unsafety that is, I would say, much more voluntary, and I also think it's one that a lot more of you might relate to. It is consuming detective fiction and true crime stories. So since I was a teenager, maybe even a preteen, I have been reading detective fiction, or I guess even now that I think about it as a child, starting out with Nancy Drew and Encyclopedia Brown. And then that evolved into spy novels and espionage thrillers. And then suddenly somewhere along the way, it turned into detective fiction. All of a sudden, you're making a habit of reading about murders and serial killers. And much like the popularity of habit tracking and books about it has soared in the past few years, I mean, crime fiction and true crime has experienced an incredible resurgence streaming television and podcasts, you know, starting, of course, with that most famous true crime podcast serial, have dramatically ratcheted up the sheer volume of content one can choose from to consume about crime and particularly about murders and, in almost all cases, about the murders of women. And I have consumed a lot of it. I've watched The Killing, The Fall, The Staircase. Top of the Lake, Mindhunter, an extremely haunting series about Ted Bundy that I will always regret watching, and a gajillion other crime shows. And I've read In Cold Blood and Silence of the Lambs. I've read novels by Raymond Chandler, Patricia Highsmith, Stephen King, Louise Penny, Stieg Larson, Robert Galbraith, Henning Mankell. Maj Sojwal and Per Walu, actually the original inventors of the police procedural. I've read Tana French and Elizabeth George and Karin Fossum, who is the Norwegian queen of crime and almost probably the only one in this long list to ever write not only about death, but also about grief. I have read an untold amount of books about murder and watched TV shows about it and listened to podcasts about it. And it took me until some point in my 40s to really begin to wonder, is this healthy? Is there perhaps something problematic about incessantly consuming content about murder and violence against women? And after many years of reflection, I have ultimately come to think of it as a form of self-harm. By constantly reading stories in which women were harmed, I was re-triggering a state of unsafety that felt familiar to me. And most of us have experienced traumatizing events at some point in our lives. And for many of us, it happened when we were children. And often to endure those events or to simply get through them, we have to leave or to disassociate from our bodies. And in that process, I believe there's a kind of breaking of trust that occurs. We no longer trust our bodies to be a safe haven for us. So being in the body becomes associated in a certain sense with being unsafe. And so this feeling of unsafety becomes familiar. It becomes the default. And that is exactly what is played and replayed in these crime fiction narratives. I've heard the argument made that part of the reason that those who have endured trauma like to read or watch police procedurals or other crime fiction is because it creates a sense of control and resolution. Because at least in these stories, the killers always get caught. As someone who has experienced trauma and someone who has consumed an incredible amount of this type of programming, I, I can see some truth in that. There is solace in watching justice be served in a way that it might not have been served in your own life. But I do think that there is a deeper cut of consciousness underneath why we watch these shows that's worth exploring. And I think that it has to do with re-triggering a feeling of unsafety. I think that there's a kind of psychological self-harm that's at work. Where we as women are teaching ourselves and reteaching ourselves again and again that we cannot and should not feel safe in our bodies, that we cannot come home to the body, that we must be vigilant because the threats to our body are all around us. You know, I don't know a single man who comes home to his apartment at night and checks under the bed and looks in all the closets before he relaxes, but this is certainly something that I have done, and it's certainly something that many women I know have done. Still today, whenever I'm staying in a new hotel room or a new house, I feel the need to do this preliminary sweep of the residence to ensure that there is nothing or no one, I should say, lying in wait for me. And it's literally second nature. It has really been instilled in me by consuming untold quantities of this type of media. I've created a kind of psychological muscle memory for murder and for murderous possibilities that is really hard to root out at this point. Stepping out of this bad habit loop is something that I have been working on for many years now. By the time that I moved upstate in 2019, I had already come into consciousness about what all of this crime fiction was doing to my psyche. So as the new owner of a home that I would be living at all alone in the woods, I decided to swear off crime fiction for good. And I remember that just as I did it, temptation arose and I got this little test There was a new crime show on Netflix that had two of my favorite actresses in it called Unbelievable that was literally about women who lived alone getting killed in their homes for no reason except that they were women living alone. And people kept asking me about it. Did you watch it? Did you watch it? It was a topic of conversation at the dog park, in my friend groups. And I kept having to recommit to my intention and tell people, no, I wasn't going to watch it and I didn't watch those types of things anymore because I was now going to be a woman living in the woods alone. I still haven't watched it. And for the most part, I have stopped consuming murdery content of all kinds, which sounds like a crazy thing to say, because how can it be normal to consume content about murder on the regular, but it really has become so normalized in our society. I remember back before my crime fiction content embargo, I was listening to the podcast Dirty John, which is about an attractive middle-aged woman who gets conned by a good-looking guy who turns into a stalker and a killer and the interstitial ad spots on the podcast were for Simply Safe, which is a DIY home security system. And it felt so eerie to hear them. Like there was this little hole in the veil, and you could see straight through to the dark inner workings of late capitalism, where I was listening to a gripping podcast that was ultimately meant to make me feel unsafe. And then Once that unsafety was created, someone could sell me a home security device that would make me feel safe and in control again. I actually even thought about getting such a security system when I moved into my new house, upstate, simply say for a ring, you know, one of those home security systems you can install yourself. But I ultimately realized that having more information that I didn't want or necessarily need about what was happening around my house was probably only going to make me feel more unsafe rather than comforting me, which was my hope. So instead I ended up installing a classic new age security system around my house. I selected a bunch of my favorite crystals and I blessed them with an intention for safety and light and I buried them around the perimeter of my house, which might sound laughable. But so far, I think it's actually made me feel far safer than watching video replays of anyone who ever approached my doorbell, you know, would have. The other way in which I made myself feel unsafe in my body for years and years was through drinking. I didn't really drink at all in high school. I hardly drank in college, but when I moved to New York City in my mid-20s, All of a sudden, it became a pretty big part of my life. New York is a city of drinkers, and it's built around the culture of drinking, that sort of classic work hard, play hard mentality, and I got sucked into it. For a long time, whiskey was my drink of choice. And since you may listen to me often, but rarely if ever see me, let me provide some context. I am five foot four inches tall, and I weigh about... 106 pounds. In terms of my physical embodiment, I am quite petite. And while I will say I used to do a pretty admirable job of holding my liquor for such a small person, there is only so much liquor a person my size can drink without consequences. And if I drank too much, the consequences were quite serious. I would spend the entire next day in bed throwing up, Unable to eat anything or drink anything until maybe 5 or 6 the next day, 5 or 6 p.m. This wasn't happening on a weekly basis or anything, but it happened often enough. It happened too often. I used to imagine creating an art installation about drinking where every time I had a horrible hangover, I would create a poster to hang on my wall that said something like, You have to stop drinking. It's not worth it. And then I would hang it on my bedroom wall. And the idea was if I did this enough, if I did this every time I was hungover, then eventually there would be so many posters covering my wall that I would be so overwhelmed with shame that I would quit drinking. Needless to say, I never actually did this. And of course, that tidal wave of shame approach probably would not have really um, healed my addiction. But what was healing was beginning to come into some consciousness about how these bad habit loops work. Let's come back to those habit books that I mentioned earlier that are all about retraining yourself to be more healthy and productive. And if you've read one of them, you probably know how habit loops work or how they say they work. The idea is that there are three components to a habit loop, the cue, the thing that triggers the habit, the routine, the habit itself, and then the reward, which tells your brain whether or not it wants to repeat the habit. So let's come back to my drinking as an example. The cue might be, you know, I'm tired after work and I want to blow off some steam. The routine might be drinking with coworkers. And the reward is socializing and relaxing. A more positive habit loop might be where the cue is I'm feeling depressed, the routine is I decide to exercise, and the reward is an improvement in my mood, for example. So the drinking that I was just talking about was very much connected to overworking, And to a certain degree, my habit loop did look like the drinking habit loop that I just described. Part of the reward was that I got to relax after a long day at work. Me and my coworkers actually had a joke with each other where we would say one drinks when we wanted to go out after work because it happened so frequently that we would say we were going to get one drink after work and then get completely sloshed. So one drinks became the joke. But I digress. Aside from, you know, blowing off steam and socializing, there was actually another sort of quote unquote reward that was always part of the habit loop for me, which was the self-castigation that would occur afterwards when I would wake up with a hangover the next morning. This incredibly punishing self-talk that I would subject myself to. That was also part of the loop. And I found that in order to stop drinking, a really critical shift was to stop engaging in that final part of the habit loop, the self-castigation. The the punishing self-talk itself was an essential part of that addictive habit loop. And once I've removed it by focusing on forgiving myself rather than admonishing myself, it was hard for the loop to continue having the same power. I also started to tune into why I was choosing to drink and what purpose it was serving for me. It became very clear that I was doing it to suppress my self-expression. If I drank regularly and if I drank enough, my mind and body would be operating at such a low vibration that I wouldn't be able to really tune into and channel my creative powers. And if I didn't channel my creative powers, if I didn't use my voice, then I wouldn't have to do things that felt scary. And if I didn't have to do things that felt scary, then I would be able to feel safe. So again, this is circling back to the idea of harming myself in some way by drinking until my body was injured and in revolt against itself, or by opting into the psychological violence of watching crime fiction. These were sort of weird, completely counterintuitive mechanisms for making myself feel safe. If I hurt myself first, if I scared myself first, if I shamed myself first, then someone else couldn't do it. So in a sense, by harming myself, I would become safe from harm. I think there are probably ways in which many of us are doing this, in which we are consciously or unconsciously choosing to do things that make us feel unsafe or make us feel ashamed. Things that rupture or interrupt our ability to feel at home. And I think it's worth very slowly, very gently, very compassionately interrogating that impulse. Looking at why are we choosing this thing? Is there a different choice you can make? And how might that feel? It has not been easy, and it's a constant work in progress, but for me, stepping out of some of these bad habit loops or breaking the cycle, let's say, has been hugely freeing because the body is a channel. So when we're able to come back home to it, when we're able to relax from a state of vigilance, we can begin to open to flow. We can begin to open to spirit. We can begin to open to inspiration. We can begin to open to creativity. We can begin to open to ourselves. So I guess what I'm asking you is, what would it feel like to change the channel? Or to turn the TV off altogether? To go from consuming this drip 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 of anxiety and unsafety whether it's in the form of alcohol or of crime fiction or other violent television or whatever your vice is what would it be like to replace that with an input that was truly nourishing what if it wasn't about tuning into someone else's channel but you were the channel what would flow in then That's the question that I'm going to leave you with today, but probably with more to come soon. As I dive more deeply into these questions, I'm getting inspired to cook up a brand new workshop maybe for early next year. So still working on it, but stay tuned for more on that. And if you want to be in the loop about new offerings please sign up for my newsletter you can do that at hurryslowly.co slash newsletter that's hurryslowly.co slash newsletter if you want to stay in the loop for new workshops and courses and energy offerings and so forth thank you to matt susich for producing this episode and to dev and craig johnson for doing some audio fine tuning and thank you to you for listening Until we meet again, remember to hurry slowly.